Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King, once upon a time, and it's so appropriate that I actually say that for this book, but once upon a time, I used to uh, read each of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication, um, but now what I have been doing since I have achieved that milestone many years ago, what I've been doing over the last few years is to analyze each of the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not he uh, deserves that reputation that he has out there, which is that he just can't land the plane when it comes to his endings. Is that true? I don't think so. Um, over the last couple of years, after looking at it, uh, looking at it with a, a critical eye, um, I, I, I think that he, you know, he, every ending might not be perfect, but seems that most of the endings are okay for the, the stories that he's telling um, with a couple duds. But for the most part, I think that that's a, a poor reputation that he has. That's that's not deserved. And I think that we as a society put too much weight uh, on endings themselves. But that is neither here nor there because this episode, this podcast is old school. That's right. I'm going back to what I used to do, which is going in deep. I'm doing a deep dive this week to review September's very recent publication of Stephen King's latest fairy tale. And I am super excited to talk about this one, ladies and gentlemen. So I have posted this and and, and similar sentiments over the last couple of years um, on Instagram and on, on Twitter um, and, and, and stuff, uh, but there's really nothing like it. There is nothing like the experience of waiting for and then the day of receiving holding in your hands a new Stephen King book there's just nothing like it and over the last couple of years maybe it's been because of it's just the the swell and that surge of Stephen King popularity maybe it's because of my extra attention to Stephen King because of this podcast maybe it's because of um middle-aged now um and the weight of of my experience with with Stephen King is something that I'm feeling uh, very heavily, and maybe it's because it's the realization that I don't know how many more opportunities I'm going to have to hold a new Stephen King book in my hands. Um, all of it just makes it matter to me. Um, I I look back on, and I've podcasted about this before, but that fall of when. Uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes came out, and that was the first new Stephen King publication that had been published when I, since I had become a Stephen King fan. And that was such a cool feeling. And then when Insomnia came out, I just love it. I just love it. And this one, I, I was, I've been very busy lately, so I haven't been able to devote a lot of time to the Stephen King cast uh, or to really just thinking about books in general. So I, I didn't put in a lot of thought into fairy tale ahead of time. I didn't have a lot of anticipation. I really liked the cover and I'm down with any time Stephen King wants to do a, like a fantasy sort of story. Um, but, you know, I wasn't, you know, jumping through through hoops um, and prognosticating on whether or not it was going to be tied into the Dark Tower or, or this and that. I just... I was excited for it, and I didn't have time to go out to my local bookstore to get it the day of, and I ordered it on Amazon, and getting that in the mail, it was, I was excited to get it. I felt bad not actually going to a bookstore, and I 
didn't really want to support Jeff Bezos any more than I had to. Um, but there's something to be said about the convenience of Amazon. That is for sure. Um, but no, I, I sat down and started reading it. Um, and I, I should say right away, I'm just jumping into the review of this. I'm not going to do uh, reviews of iTunes. I'm not going to uh, read listener emails. I'm just going to get right into it. I should have said that at the top. But as soon as I started reading it, this one, uh, I just wanted to take it slow. And I had been thinking uh, a lot lately of a, a picture that I had taken um a couple of years ago when um, Later had come out of me and uh, my dog, Maybe, who, as you all know, um, passed last year. We're coming on coming up on the, the year anniversary of that. And you all know how much my furry co-hosts have meant to this show. Um, and not, not necessarily to the show, but have meant to me through this show. Um, so... The fact that the book so heavily discusses and captures that love of um, an owner and his dog, it was it was uh, really getting me in all of the the right places. And you know, I, I was just thinking about you know reading later with maybe right by my feet um, and just enjoying that experience. And as I was thinking about this and reminiscing on this, um, you know, I, 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 have a, I had a new dog that was right next to me, um, Ruby, I, who I've been bonding with and it's been going great. She's awesome. She's a lot of fun. Um, so it was just like, again, the, the, the passing of time, which in of itself is important because that's a huge piece to this story, was just really present with each word on the page, with each turn of the page. And the fact that it's a book about your old dog and what you'll do for your aging dog. And I kept thinking about maybe, and I kept thinking about Sonny, um, and I kept thinking about, yeah, I would have gone to a fairy tale land to turn back time to give me another day, another year, another five years, another ten, um, if it meant that I could have those moments, more moments, and that any of us would, um, because the time that we have with our dogs, it's, it's way too short, and it just made me really appreciate the time that I have with Ruby, and the time that my daughter is going to be able to spend growing up with her own dog it's phenomenal it's a wonderful feeling um and i've been podcasting now for almost 10 minutes and i haven't really started talking about the book but already i just think that it goes to show that this one was special because stephen king really had something to say you know he was he's kind of um edging into Dean Koontz territory here because Koontz has always been the the guy that writes about dogs um which isn't to say that he that King hasn't written about animals before. He, he definitely has about that bond um, because he himself is someone that, um, you know, loves loves his dogs. You know, currently he has Molly, who he loves posting about um, on, on Twitter all the time. And so it's for him to be able to immortalize his love of 
his companions um, and imbue this story with those personal touches, I, I think that that's really sweet. Um, you know, and it was just a book that I realized that early on, as I started reading it, every time I picked it up and started reading, it genuinely brought a smile to my face. I just felt, and I didn't realize it, but I just, I would kind of realize after a second, there was a, this, this, this soft smile just tugging at the corner of my mouth. And I mean that literally. It's not a metaphorical smile. It wasn't just warming my heart. Um, it, it meant that every time my eyes turned towards the words that Stephen King had given me, my mouth moved in response. And this one, I soaked this one in slower and a lot more deeply than some of his other ones that he's done. You know, I mean, Billy Summers, like, as you know, I didn't even really do a review. I was out on Billy Summers. I just kind of said, okay, whatever, I'll finish this. I was not into it. Um, Elevation, later, those were very, very quick reads. Um, and I enjoyed them, but they were very quick reads. Um, the Institute, I was not a huge fan of. Um, this one, though, this one was different. And I was reading this one differently, too. And I thought because it was a book about stories and to have a master of stories telling such a tale by going to the well, the well of the worlds. Um, but it wasn't that. It wasn't just that. It was maybe because I was you know, approaching the anniversary, like I said, of, of maybe passing and the loving depiction of owning an old dog. <clears throat> it was captured so beautifully. That is part of it, as I've said, but that's not just it. At the top of this podcast, I talked about looking back and those times in my life when I was able to to get those Stephen King books when they were first published when I was a young reader, you know, and I'm older now. And I've loved owning Stephen King books. I love this experience. And I have a relationship with these stories, as we all do, as I've talked about extensively throughout the years on this show. The fact that he calls us all constant reader creates a relationship between him and us. I have a tattoo on my arm of the Dark Tower. I've been doing this show for a while. We've all devoted our, our time and attention and our love of, of sharing these stories that he is giving to us. And King, whether he did this intentionally or not, and he must have because he named Charlie's last name so significantly. This is a story about a character named Charlie Reed who has this relationship with this aging dog. And what does that tell you? And he enters this land of stories with his aging dog. How much do you think that we are Charlie Reed in this case? We are the reader. Charlie Reed, CR, constant reader. Who is the aging dog here? And that got me. That really got me. That, yes, King, you know, always puts himself so much into the, the narrator. And yes, he's pouring in his love of... Um, his companions and, and his dogs, but yeah, the stories that King is giving us, <laughs> that's Radar, that's King himself, and to know that we don't, you know, 
you know, I'm, I'm acting like King is on his deathbed, you know, for God's sakes, that's not the case. I mean, we could have another 20 years of Stephen King books, but it, it just, it, I'm aware of, of age. I'm aware that Stephen King is older than he was when I first started reading him. <clears throat> and that to me, this story about stories with a character whose initials are the affectionate nickname that King has for all of us. I thought that that was significant. I thought that having this story about the relationship between the constant reader and, and this dog, um, it meant a lot. It meant a lot. Um, so yeah, King is radar. We are the reader. We love the stories and we'll do anything to, to go back and, and, reread the stories and to get new stories along the way um so that's that's what i got out of that and the thing about this book is that king has written about magical lands before we've had the dark tower the talisman eyes of the dragon um but with fairy tale despite the magic at play and the wonder that unfolds here it's held together by this incredibly relatable, personal, heartfelt question. How far would you go to save your furry best friends if you had the means to do so? Two pages in, and he already gives you so much history of the town and manifests the town through landmarks that we, the reader, can latch onto. The ramshackle old Victorian house, the Little Rumple River, the old bridge, the Sycamore Street Hill, the Zip Mart sold out, that sold motor oil, Little Debbie Cakes. You know, King just places us there. It's his trademark um, descriptive ability that just takes us and puts us there. And King is writing about the death of Charlie's mother, but also teasing the presence of fairy tales along the way. There is a magical quality to this town already. The little Rumpel, I can't even say it, the little Rumpel River's name connotes naturally Rumpelstiltskin, whose name will come up again and again and again throughout the story. The constant repetition of the bridge invokes Billy Goat's gruff. And when his mother sets off on her fateful journey, she's wearing a little red riding hood raincoat. The last one might not be subtle, but they, the name of the book is called Fairy Tale, so I don't think that King is really going for subtlety here. But he still hits you with those Stephen King haymakers that he's known so well for. She saw me looking at her through the window and waved. I waved back and turned my attention to the TV. I wish I had looked longer, but I don't blame myself. You never know where the trap doors are in your life, do you? So... Again, it's about these moments and you wish that you could go back. And in this, this is a book where you actually can. You can reverse time to a certain degree. And there's a beauty to this and a sadness and a reality that we have our stories to be able to do that. And we can create these stories where we have our fairy tales. And they're better worlds than these. Um, and it's fantastical and it's wondrous but there's also that, that sadness as well. At this point already in the book, it's clear that King is crafting a world based on our understanding of fairy tales. And what makes me smile as a reader is seeing him weave his own threads into that tapestry. The river and the bridge are invocative of the barrens. Sycamore Street Hill is reminiscent of Mile Hill. And within 10 pages in, we have a car crash that leads to a character's death. And where have we seen that before in a Stephen King book? After Charlie's mother's death, there's an extended portion of the story in which you learn about the emotional fallout, 
specifically around his father's drinking. Thankfully, mercifully, the alcoholism, though it might cause strife between father and son, and is the reason he's fired from his job, is con- you know, it, it, it's conquered. And it gives us shades of adult uh, Danny Torrance's successful triumphing over his dependency demons. And then from there, we meet Mr. Bowditch, and more importantly, the real heart of the story, Radar. And again, um, it's hard if you have owned a dog, it's very hard to not take your dog and superimpose your dog over Radar. Um, and that's fine. That's that's the point. Radar is... is um, is designed to to do that um you know and so i was clearly thinking about maybe this entire time but also i'm gonna go back i'm gonna go way way back i'm gonna go back to my first dog lassie who i have never talked about on this show but i think should be immortalized here because she was a good girl and she was immortalized um and i mean she was a good girl and she was loyal um and she was given to my family by my uncle, who found her in a trash bag on the side of the road as a puppy. Um, and he brought her to us because, you know, we were a young family. And he thought that, you know, little six-year-old me should have a puppy. And this was the 80s, so <laughs> dog training wasn't really a thing. Uh, Lassie wasn't really trained. And she, partially because of her trauma partially because she wasn't trained, partially because of her breed. Um, she wasn't the, the uh, most friendly dog to outsiders. She was incredibly loyal. She was incredibly loyal to our family, um, and it was cute. So the only people that could kind of get through um, this inner circle was myself, my brother, my dad, my mom, and my best friend, and that was it. That was it. Um, and then my uncle. Anyone else, she was dangerous. She was a dangerous dog to be around. But she was a wonderful girl, um, such a sweetheart. And, um, you know, I was thinking a lot about Lassie, the German Shepherd, um, as I read about Radar, the German Shepherd. Okay, so here is a little quote um, that I think just kind of sums this up. We never had a dog, so I didn't know how expressive their eyes could be, especially up close and personal. Hers told me not to go. I would have been happy to stay, but as that poem says, I had promises to keep. I stroked her a few times and told her to be good. I remember reading somewhere that a dog ages seven years for each one of ours. Just a rule of thumb, surely, but at least a way to figure. And what did that mean to a dog, time-wise? If I came back at six to feed her, that she would be twelve hours of my time. Would that be eighty-four hours for her? Three and a half days? If so, no wonder she was so happy to see me. Plus, she had to be missing Mr. Bowditch. So, I mean, I've seen a quote, you know, I think that we all have on, on Facebook from time to time, like, you know, something along the lines of, like, you might not be, you know, they might not be your entire world, but you are their entire world or something like that. You know, that from the beginning until the end, we will be a part of our dog's life and we are everything um, to them. Um, And when we see them, it just makes them that much sweeter um, for knowing that they wait for us if if they experience time differently. 
Anyway, from here, King allows us to luxuriate in the life of Charlie and his growing interconnectedness with Mr. Bowditch and Radar while reading the mysteries of the shed and Mr. Bowditch's source of his money, bucket filled with gold, which Charlie is tasked with exchanging for cash into a scene tinged with danger, reminding us of Charlie's youth and the enormity of the world of adults. Here, though we are still rooted in our real world, King teases the fairy tale aspect by referencing Jack and the Beanstalk and Long John Silver. And though King slowly teases out the mystery of the gold and the inevitable adventure, it's the relationships and Charlie's dedication to Bowditch and Radar that keep this book a page-turner. King walks us through the agony of Bowditch's physical therapy, but we also bask in the laptop glow of old movies. And the voice! <laughs> and I can taste the coke that they share at dinner. And Charlie's love of Radar, and the bond the two characters have over their shared adoration of her, well, for anyone that's ever loved and lost an old dog, it really does whew, hit close to home. He looked shocked. I'll... She can do it in the house. I'll put down papers. She'd hate that. You know she would. Maybe she's just a dog, but she has her dignity. And if this is her last summer, her last fall, I could feel tears rising, and you'll only think that that's absurd if you never had a dog you loved. I don't want to be on the practice field hitting a fucking tackling dummy when she passes. I'll go to school. Gotta do that. But the rest of the time, I want to be there. And if that isn't good enough for you, fire me. So, last year, I I know that I, I had said that I was rushing. I was rushing in the morning um, when Maybe died. And she came over to me in pain. I didn't have a the time of day for her at that moment because I needed to get to work. And that was her way of, you know, she was trying to say goodbye to me. And I didn't have time for her. And I'll always live with that. So that scene, uh, that line, that, that one got me. So be there for your animals, guys. Because you're all they got. The danger mounts as the gold dealer is shot. Something tries to emerge from the shed, and after Bowditch deals with it, he dies shortly after. And King reemphasizes the fact that Bowditch, in his youth, was a woodcutter. Okay, And woodcutters, obviously, are a huge part of fairy tales, so that's... It's just linking these two worlds together. And then we get the big reveal. Bowditch's origin and the well of the worlds. King teases just enough to entice us, to entice Charlie, but keeping the mysteries of this other world so very alive. Even though Charlie and the reader is on the cusp of a big moment, King continually keeps him and us grounded in recognizable reality and emotion. She went from room to room downstairs, looking for Mr. Bowditch. She didn't seem to be upset by the vandalism, but barked furiously at the couch, only to pausing to look at me every now and then, as if I was stupid. Couldn't I see what was wrong? Her master's bed had disappeared. I got, to follow, I got her to follow me into the kitchen and told her down, but she wouldn't, only kept looking toward the living room. I offered her a chicken chip, her favorite snack, but she dropped it onto the linoleum. I decided I'd have to take her back home and leave her with Dad. But when she saw the lease, she ran very limberly through the living room and up the stairs. I found her in Mr. Bowditch's bedroom, curled up in front of the closet on a makeshift bed of clothes that had been um, torn off of their hangers. She seemed okay there, so I went back downstairs and made things as much better as I could. 
Around 11 o'clock, I heard the click of her nails on the stairs. Seeing her hurt my heart. She wasn't limping, but she moved slowly with her head down and her tail drooping. She looked at me with expression as clear as words. Where is he? Come on, girl, I said. Let's get you out of here. This time she didn't protest the leash. As Charlie starts to explore the concept of another world, King is able to muse on the coincidences and the tropes that occur within fantasy stories. Charlie starts to draw the commonalities between his life and the archetypal structure of a fairy tale, whether it be Jack and the Beanstalk or a young boy joining a wizarding school. King has made the choice to enter this other world very clear. On one level, Charlie knows he has to do it because he knows he's a character in a story, but King has, always, uh, has also modernized the tale to a degree in which the entrance to this alternate world exists within a modern age that can very easily discover, plunder, and exploit its resources. For an example of how the modern world can completely corrupt a fantasy environment, look no further than the short story Fawn by Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. And when Charlie descends the stone steps to enter the world, what we do, what do we immediately see? But the skyline image of one of the most famous iconography in our shared collective, the Emerald City of Oz. Of course, for Stephen King fans, this city holds significance. But even as a Dark Tower reader, when I saw this, did I immediately assume it was the same Emerald City conjured by flag in Wizarding Glass? No. But I do think that King will think that we think that. I do think that. There is nothing like the first steps that a hero takes on his or her journey. I'll never get sick of the wonder and amazement that we as readers get to feel when we experience the thrills of a new world through the eyes of our hero, and this is no different. Heading into this book, Stephen King fandom grew excited at the thought that a current fairy tale story by Stephen King would mean the return of the Dark Tower. For me, I never had that anticipation. And even though there, there's touches and flourishes right away, such as the Emerald City and the Red Field of Flowers, I still felt as if I was reading that this world existed in the multiverse and not one whose earth had been traveled by Roland. When we meet the first denizen of this world, it aligns with what I had thought. In fact, King goes out of his way to show just how uncomfortable Charlie is with a gun. And at literally one point says, I'm no gunslinger. King is good, as, is good at, at acknowledging his other worlds and has proven that he can create a shared universe long before it was popular to do so in fiction. And I admire his restraints that he doesn't feel the need to connect or sequelize everything. And he writes, As if summoned by the thought, the cottage's back door opened and a woman came out with her other boot in her hand, the buckles gleaming in the mellow light of the white sky day. I knew she was a woman because she was wearing a pink dress and red shoes, but also and, uh, also because generous breasts plumped out of the bodice of her dress. But her skin was a slate gray 
and her face was cruelly deformed. It was as if her features had been drawn in charcoal and some bad-tempered deity had rubbed its hand across them, smearing and blurring them almost out of existence. Her eyes were slits, as were her nostrils. Her mouth was a lipless crescent. She spoke to me, but I couldn't tell what she was saying. I think her vocal cords were as blurred out as her face. But the lipless crescent was unmistakably a smile, and there was a feeling, a vibe, if you like, that I had absolutely nothing to fear from her. This is such a weird way to enter this world and a weird character to meet, but I loved it. The dangers of the modern world manifest themselves with the arrival of Christopher Polly, who greets Charlie upon his return to the shed. While we might expect ogres and trolls and giant spiders lurking in the woods, there's something sad and truthful about the fact that the greatest danger of all is a greedy man with small vision and a gun. No, this doesn't take place in the same world as the gunslinger or the talisman, but there isn't to say that, that they don't share some DNA here. The manner in which Charlie is able to take down Christopher Polly showcases an inner strength and cold steel that reminded me of Jack Sawyer at his most vengeful and Eddie Dean after he had become a full-fledged gunslinger. And this similarity grows. He has... So, at, I had just read that not too long ago... Charlie says to himself, he's no gunslinger. The gun didn't feel right. But the second, the second he returns from this world, after just having experienced it, he is already beginning a change within himself. A change that will soon grow physical the more time he spends in this world, in Empus. And it's also bringing out an adventuring, dark prince version of himself in which he is heroic, he is formidable, and he's not going to take any shit from the likes of people like Christopher Polly. So lo before long, Charlie heads into the fairy tale world, and the story is purposefully simple and innocent. The characters he meets are kind, they are helpful, and they assist Charlie in his quest to save Radar. King has presented us with versions of fantasy worlds before. Most famously, the Dark Tower series ballooned with imagination, mixing post-apocalyptic with Western sci-fi and fantasy. Robots and vampires, time travel, dimension hopping, talking animals, gunfire, the mob, sentient locomotives, wizards, castles, mutants. The result was messy, mind-blowing, and revolutionary. With the talisman, King and Straub presented a wholly realized traditional fantasy world with flying people, talking wolves, and shapeshifters. The innocence and danger of that world was completely informed by the dangers present in the real world of the 1980s. With Fairy Tale, the story feels, at this point, small, in a good way, and pure. The boy wants to save his dog, and he's helped by memorable townsfolk along the way. If there isn't a propulsive quality to the story, that's fine. Because we, as the reader, as Charlie Reed, he's able to luxuriate in this world. Yes, there is the urgency of getting Radar to the sundial. But it's not propelled by a sense of danger. The danger will come later. But in his other fantasy worlds, there has been a danger baked into the DNA. I like the way that King is able to 
expand on the world and then have Charlie enter this world of danger. Because right now there is this exciting piece to it as he steps into this new world. The danger will come and the danger will be dangerous. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And it is such a joy once the, 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 that danger and that menace and that threat starts to grow um, and starts to come closer. But right now, there's a simplicity to it. And it's a master at his game telling something that is very rooted in traditional storytelling. And there's something to be said about just taking a moment to soak it all in. Through the journey, we get teases of larger dangers, warnings from refugees, the howling of wolves at night, and the wrongness that emanates from the rotting town outside of the haunted city. Here, King takes a moment to give a quick tribute to H.P. Lovecraft. The conjuring um, of one of King's literary heroes places Charlie in a Lovecraftian location with all of the unfathomable horrors that come with it. But more important for me, King takes the opportunity to have Charlie reflect on reading and on Lovecraft himself and his introduction through a friend in sixth grade. Why was that important to me? When did I first get into Stephen King? In sixth grade. So to have the person who is my Lovecraft write about his Lovecraft and finding his Lovecraft in sixth grade, I thought that that was really special. King spends time describing Charlie getting closer and closer to the city till he reaches a wonderfully described towering wall and massive gate so large it would dwarf the gates at Jurassic Park and Skull Island. And with it comes a question of how will a teenage boy be able to open up a 70-foot-tall football field-wide gate? The answer is to channel your inner Roland Deschain and command the gate to open. King continues to push the throttle on uh, the Lovecraftian nature of this world, which to me was an unexpected and delightful surprise. Longtime readers will know that I'm not a fan of the more traditional classic version of the fantasy world, Eyes of the Dragon. And though this book so far has kept things simple enough, I was surprised and excited when he started to make it weirder than I had expected it to be. The hallmark of Lovecraft and uh, Lovecraftian fiction is that humans, limited by our finite consciousness and understanding, can never comprehend the true existence of elder gods. So when the gates swing open, Charlie's mind and senses cannot fathom the geometry and shapes of the gate itself. It's a nice touch that differentiates this book from the other fantasy stories that he has told. And the description of the city beyond the gate is king at his best. Ahead of me inside the gate was a vast, tiled courtyard. It was lined with the remains of great stone butterflies on both sides, each on a pedestal and standing 20 feet high. Their wings had been broken and lay on piles on the courtyard floor. They made a kind of passageway. I wondered if once upon a better time each of those monarch butterflies for of course that's what they were, had represented a king or queen in the line of Galleon. The screaming started up again, and I realized the gate was preparing to roll shut. Leah's name might open it again. It might not. I had the intention of finding out. I mounted up and pedaled inside as the gate began to rumble shut. The rubber wheels whispered on the tiles, which had once been colorful but now faded. 
Everything's turning gray, I thought. Gray or that sick shade of cloudy green. The butterflies, perhaps once colorful, but now as gray as everything else, loomed over us as we passed beneath between. The bodies were intact, but the faces as well as the wings had been battered. It made me think of the videos I'd seen of Isis destroying ancient statues, artifacts, and temples they considered blasphemous. We came to a double arch in the shape of butterfly wings. Something had been written above it, but that too had been battered. All the remains were the letters L-I. My first thought was Lilimar, the name of the city, but it could have been Galleon. Before going through the arch, I looked back to check on... So... Oh, I'm still, he's still going. Uh, before going through the arch, I looked back to check on radar. We had to be quiet. Each of the people I'd met made that point in his or her own way, and I didn't think that was going to be a problem with raids. She was asleep again, which was good in one way and worrisome in the other. The arch was damp and smelled of ancient decay. On the other side was a circular pool faced in lichen-encrusted stone. Perhaps once the water in that pool had been a cheerful blue. Perhaps once people had come here um, to sit on the stone coping, eating their midday meals while watching the emissarian version of ducks and swans go gliding. Mothers might have held their children out so they could paddle their feet. Now there were no birds and no people. If there had been, they would have steered clear of that pool as if it were poison, because that's what it looked like. The water was an opaque, viscous green that appeared almost solid. The vapor rising from it was indeed mephetic, which I imagined the stench of a tomb stuffed with decaying bodies would smell like. Surrounding, it was a curving walkway just barely big enough for the three-wheeler. One on the, on the other tiles to the right were most, Mr. Bowditch's initials. I started that way, then stopped and looked back, certain I'd heard something. The shuffle of footsteps, or maybe the whisper of a voice. Pay no mind to voices you may hear, Claudia had said. Now I heard nothing and nothing moved in the shadows of the arch I'd come through. I pedaled slowly around the right side curve of the stinking pool. On the far side was another butterfly arch. As I neared it, a drop of rain fell on the back of my neck, then another. They began to dot the pool, making the brief craters on its surface. As I looked, something black emerged from it just for a second or two, then it disappeared. I didn't get a good look, but I'm pretty sure I saw the momentary gleam of teeth. The rain began to come down harder. Soon it would be a torrent. Once in the shelter of the second arch, I dismounted and spread the blanket over my sleeping dog. Musty and moth-eaten or not, I was very glad I had brought it. And these descriptions that he's giving us conjure image, uh, images illustrated by Dark Tower collaborator Michael Whelan who had drawn numerous examples of worlds inspired by Lovecraft works. So I thought that that was really cool. So I know that there were really cool illustrations in this book already, but the ones that were conjured by the mind's eye given to us by the descriptive prose of King was that of one of the better known um, illustrators of his magnum opus who began and ended the illustrations of the Dark Tower saga. Um, yeah, and if you just type in uh, Michael Whalen, H.P. Lovecraft, you'll get a lot of very horrific alien landscapes, um, That some of which line up with the types of descriptions that King is giving us here. Charlie gets further into the city, and there he meets the latest addition to King's monster roster, the which is 
That'd be a cool band name, Monster Roster. The giant known as Hannah. Shortly after, King expands the wonder and the magic of this land by giving us, um, and albeit a dead uh, mermaid. And then the pair arrive at the sundial. King ratches up the tension with Radar not just uh, at death's door, but uh, having three paws through it already. Racing against time in utter silence, Charlie manages to get the sundial working and reverses her aging. And guys, anyone who has ever lost a dog, um, this scene hits really, really hard. As it happened, I didn't have to grab her at all. When I put her on the sundial, Raids couldn't have even walked on her own. After five going on six turns on it, she was an entirely different dog. She dropped to her haunches, flexed newly powerful back legs, and leaped into my outstretched arms. It was like being hit with a flying bag of concrete. I fell over on my back with radar over me, four paws planted wide on either side of my shoulders, wagging her tail like crazy and licking my face. Stop it, I whispered, but the command didn't have much force because I was laughing. She went on linking. At last, I sat up and took a good look at her. She'd been down to 60 pounds, maybe less. Now she had gone to 80 or 90. The wheezing and coughing were gone. The white had disappeared both from her snout and the black saddle of fur on her back. Her tail, which had been a tattered flag, was bushy and full as it swished back and forth. Best of all, the surest indicator of the change that the sundial had wrought were her eyes. They were no longer filmy and dazed as if she didn't know exactly what was going on within her or the outside world around her. Look at you, I whispered. I just had to wipe my eyes. Just look at you. And the following quote reminds us to take stock in gratitude. Even in the dimness, I could see how, how good Radar looked, how young and strong. I was glad. Maybe that seems like a tame word to you, but it doesn't to me. I think that gladness is a big, big deal. After sneaking past Hannah a second time, Charlie and Radar get lost, unable to find Bowditch's initials to lead them back. King then reveals that this was purposeful, as a villainous little person, Peter King, has re uh, returned to trap Charlie in the city after nightfall. Until now, the book has been enjoyable, but as I said, without any true real sense of tension. There's been mystery, but it's been safe, soft. Think back into those other fantasy stories, the Elroy thing in Oatly, Sonny Gardner. The inherent danger in every new environment in Midworld. This has been predictable without danger until now. In a haunted city with at least one man-eating giant, Charlie and Radar have to escape in the gathering gloom by running through a decrepit cemetery and King does not disappoint. I sprinted through the tall iron gate standing ajar, and for the first time, Radar hesitated, front paws on a crumbling concrete slab, rear paws on the street. I stopped, too, long enough to catch my breath. I don't like it either, girl, but we have to. Come on. She came. She, we wove our way around the leaning grave markers. An evening mist was beginning to rise from the overgrown grass and thistles. I could have... I could see a wrought iron fence 40 yards ahead. It looked too high to climb, even if I hadn't had my dog with me. 
but there was a gate. I tripped over a gravestone and went sprawling. I started to get up, then froze, at first not believing what I was seeing. Radar was barking wildly. A desiccated hand with yellowing bone showing through torn skin emerged from the ground. It opened and closed, clutching and releasing little showers of wet earth. When I saw such thing in horror movies, I just laughed and hooted along with my friends and grabbed more popcorn. I wasn't laughing now. I screamed, and the hand heard me. It turned towards me like a fucking radar dish, clutching at the darkening air. I leapt to my feet and ran. Raids ran, ran beside me, barking and snarling and looking back over her shoulder. I reached the cemetery gate. It was locked. I drew back, lowered one shoulder, and hit it the way I'd once hit an opposing lineman. It rattled but didn't give. Raids, barks were climbing the ladder, no longer rof, 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 but yark, yark, yark almost as if she were also trying to scream. I looked back and saw more hands emerging from the ground, like ghostly flowers with fingers instead of petals. First just a few, then dozens, maybe hundreds, and something else, something worse. The squall of rusty hinges. The crypts were about to give up their dead. I remember thinking that punishing trespassers was one thing understandable, but this was ridiculous. I hit the gate again, giving everything I had. The lock broke. The gate burst open and I went flailing forward, arms waving, trying to keep my balance. I almost made it, then tripped over something else. A cobblestone and went on my knees. I looked up and saw that I had fallen onto Galleon Road. So they're able to escape the zombies, but now have to evade the night soldiers. Ghostly apparitions. Ghosts and zombies. Okay, let me take you all back. As, as I was reading this, I heard something playing in my head. What you are listening to is the theme to the, uh, the classic uh, Nintendo game uh, Ghosts and Goblins, uh, which I played a little bit, but that song was, I, I could kind of hear the song, but the, that idea of, of running through a graveyard and encountering the ghosts and, 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 and the zombies and skeletons, um, it was really conjuring uh, the, the side-scrolling 2D uh, video games of my youth, Ghosts and Goblins, um, and of course, the end-all be-all, uh, Castlevania. Um, and there's something so magical and again childlike and and there's a simplicity there of this fairy tale world look at what he's fighting he's in a haunted city there's a giant which is the one of the the oldest uh monsters that that you could think of zombies skeletons these ghostly apparitions these are this is what i used to draw you know, I, when I was a kid, you know, it's it's a truly harrowing sequence. Um, I mean, Radar escapes. Charlie is grabbed by the the skeletal ghost of the uh, of the night soldiers. Um, I mean, this is it's this is wonderful. This whole sequence, it's spooktacular. It's Halloweeny, and it's October as I'm as I'm recording this. You know, it, it conjures EC Comics, and it it just makes me think of of. You know, when I was a kid around this time, like me and my my best friend, whom was one of the uh, the people, like I said, that uh, was on the inner circle that could, you know, 
that Lass would protect. Um, I just remember us, you know, eating Reese's peanut butter cups, watching cartoons, and drawing skeletons of bats and gravestones on loose leaf paper during Halloween season. I just remember looking at, as a kid, at old comics of of Dracula and the Wolfman. It was always in, you know, um, you know, old villages, um, you know, or or a castle setting um, with a full moon and and mist and clouds going over the moon and bats and mountains in the background and cemeteries and tombstones falling over and skeletons everywhere and that's what king's giving us here and it's wonderful and it's magical and it's fun it's that fun kind of spirit halloween um you know kind of scare it's a safe scare that you get it's a classic scare that you get and after Charlie watches Radar escape, he awakens in Deep Moline, an underground prison, with a cellmate who starts name-dropping characters we need to know more about. I want to know. I want to know about Red Molly, the flight killer, the Lord High. King takes pains to remind us of how low stakes um, and the adherence to an adventurous tone that he has. Even though he's in, deep in the bowels of a fairy tale prison held captive by ghostly skeletal soldiers... King goes out of his way to wink at us as if to say, we're still having fun. There's a sequence where the night soldiers come for him, where King describes... I mean, so I actually should get back to that a little bit. I mean, just compare the tone here of King in the cell with his light-hearted cellmate um, to when Jack... I'm sorry, when, yeah, when Jack and Wolf are at Sonny Gardner's home for wayward children. Think about those two different scenes, both prisons, but the bleakness and despair and the, the pain and the horror and the deep sadness that occurs within the talisman. And this, still, even though he is deep in the bowels of this fairy tale prison, there's still fun. It just feels kind of fun. There's a sequence where the night soldiers come for him, where King describes how the skull is flashing through the skin, and they're illuminated by the walls with their special blue light. It's creepy, and I think that we as readers bring our own sense of dread, which is why it's so fun um, when the soldier walks into the cell. As intention builds, King writes, The waiting night soldier, it's, no, I'm sorry, its face was stern, but beneath it, Coming and going, his skull flashed in an eternal grin. He gestured with his stick for me to walk ahead of him to the door. Before I could go through it, he said, Hold! And then, Fuck! I stopped. On our right, one of the uh, gas jet fixtures had fallen out of the wall. It hung askew from its metal hose below the hole like a gaping mouth, still flaming and blackening one of the stone blocks with soot. As he put it back in, his aura brushed me. I felt all my muscles weaken and understood why Harney had taken such care to avoid that blue envelope. It was like getting a shock from a frayed lamp cord. I stepped away. Hold, damn you! Hold, I say! The night soldier grabbed the fixture, which looked to be made of brass. It must have been hotter than hell, but he didn't show any pain. He jammed it back into the hole. The fixture stayed put for a moment, then fell out again. Fuck! 
It was an unexpected treat to see this ghostly soldier react as an everyman. In fact, it's actually kind of reminiscent of the blue-collar qualities of the low men as depicted in the final book of The Dark Tower. It really cracked me up. And similarly, when he's reintroduced to uh, uh, Kellen, the Lord High, who had been the one to snatch him from escape, he is wearing a red velvet smoking jacket which conjures our idea of the Crimson King, but also, to me, more importantly, the bad fashion choices of the low men in yellow coats. Soon after, Charlie plays an athletic event in a fairy tale land that showcases his ability and strengthens the growing belief that he is the savior of the people. By this point, he's starting to change physically to resemble a prophesied prince that will save them all. Charlie stops to consider the magic and wonder of this place and how easy it is to lose sight of the majesty, especially when compared to our world. As he'll later write, I think all worlds are magic. We just grow used to it. And he writes, What about magic, you ask? The sundial, the night soldiers, the buildings that sometimes seem to change their shape? They took it for granted. If you find that strange, imagine a time traveler from 1910 being transported to 2010 and finding a world where people threw, flew through the sky in giant metal birds and rode in cars capable of going 90 miles an hour. A world where everyone went bopping around with powerful computers in their pockets. Or imagine a guy who's only seen a few silent black and white films plunked down in the front row of an IMAX theater and watching Avatar in 3D. You get used to the amazing, that's all. Mermaids and IMAX, giants and cell phones. If it's in your world, you go with it. It's wonderful, right? Only look at it another way, and it's sort of awful. Think Gogmagog is scary? Our world is sitting on a potentially world-ending supply of nuclear weapons, and if that's not black magic, I don't know what is. So much of fantasy is designed to showcase the fantastical. Rarely do we have an interpretation that lessens the wonders of the fantastical place by stacking it up against our wonders and our threats. And speaking of threats, the flight killer finally gets his three second... I'm sorry, his 30-second prisoner, which means that they're able to have the tournament proper. It's basically just a gladiatorial contest where contestants are paired against each other and whittled down um, each fight as each fight goes on to the death. And it's during these tournaments we get our first full description of the flight killer. Okay. Awful, awful. His face is green as if there's something wrong with him inside. Long white hair falling down his cheeks from under the crown he wears. His eyes are as big as soft-boiled eggs. It's a broad face, so wide it's hardly human. His lips are fat and red like he was eating strawberries. That was all of him I could see. He's swaddling a huge purple robe from chin down, but I could see it moving like he was holding a pet underneath. He's awful, monstrous, and he laughs. The others applauded when I when Hamney died, but he just laughed. Drool came out of his mouth on both sides. I saw it in the gaslights. Ugh. I mean, I, I just can't wait to uh, to read more about the flight killer. What a wonderful description of a wonderfully depicted villain. Such a fairy tale villain. The evil king. 
The, king, uh, the sequence builds to a climactic battle between Claw, the mammoth prisoner, and Charlie himself. Charlie has just discovered Claw's weakness, um, just as David found the Achilles heel to Goliath, namely that Claw doesn't have peripheral vision. Now, one of my favorite scenes in, in any piece of fiction um, is from the show, uh, Game of Thrones, um, when the, the, the mountain versus the viper. And this was very reminiscent of that scene. And what's even cooler is that the adventurous spirit of Charlie, who had once been defined by a discomfort uh, around Bowditch's gun, is being um, defined more and more by the steel running down his spine and a bloodlust when faced with confrontation. He is less scared of his opponent as he is scared of his own eagerness to combat him. What follows is a tense and thrilling scene as Charlie emerges the victor and from there he must plan the liberation of his fellow prisoners and a revolution that would free the kingdom from the flight killer. He is visited by the cricket he once saved from Peter King hundreds of pages ago and begins to turn his mind over to discover the way he is going to accomplish his prophesied goal. And King gives us a memorable quote about the power and unpredictability of imagination. I don't know if she was right about that. It's hard to take the literary judgments of a 12-year-old too seriously, even if she is a horror maven. But Drac was good. Yet long after all the blood sucking, the stakes pounded into her, our hearts, I'm sorry, the stakes pounded into hearts, and the dead mouth stuffed with garlic had pretty much left my mind, I remembered something Van Helsing said about laughter, which he called King Laugh. He said that King Laugh didn't knock, but barged in. You know, it's true if you ever saw something funny and couldn't help laughing, not just in the moment, but every time you remembered it. I think true inspiration is like that. There's no link you can put your finger on saying, oh, sure, I was thinking about this, and it led me to that. Inspiration doesn't knock. The time comes for Charlie to make his move, and he finally connects the pieces together needed to make it. The answer to defeating the night soldiers is simple and obscured by the very same simplicity. After all, in The Wizard of Oz, how did Dorothy defeat one of fairy tales' greatest villains? She poured water on her. Why shouldn't electric skeletons be any different? The escape plan works long enough to get to the outside where they're chased down by Red Molly, the monstrous child of Hannah the Giant. And in a moment, Roland the Gunslinger would be proud of, Charlie stands true, takes aim, and vanquishes his oncoming foe. The monarch butterflies return in a scene not unlike the sparrows in the ending of the Dark Half, and we get a beautiful reunion between Charlie and Radar. Soon after, the endgame becomes clear. It's a race against time for Charlie to get to Elden before Elden can awaken the creature that lives in the well. His return to the city is accompanied by the Galleon family members and the living escaped prisoners. Immediately upon return, Charlie demonstrates just how heroic he is by bravely walking straight towards the grieving giant Hannah. Considering so much of what he had to do to slink past her the first time around, this brazen display of confidence shows the reader how far he has come in his journey. In some ways, the scene feels like a promise to a different story, the original text of the gunslinger, in which there was a beast described that guarded the tower, and how Roland would have to vanquish that beast. So, spoiler alert for the, the Dark Tower, that winds up getting retconned out, just edited out. We don't really 
get that. Um, so seeing this here, it was just kind of flagging that for me. In order for Charlie to progress any further, and I'm actually going to talk about the Dark Tower comp in a little bit. In order for Charlie to progress any further, this is exactly what he has to do. And he vanquishes this particular beast with the coldness and determination befitting our favorite gunslinger. King gives the reader and the character a tour of the palace, and he uses his trademark for imagery at full force. It's a wonderfully described sequence with hidden doors, uh, mis mysterious contraptions, and teased histories that we never fully get. They make their way towards the deep well, and King ratchets up the suspense and the horror. The walls ooze a sickly green light that should remind readers of other horror-tinged lights, like the more famous dead lights or the glow from the Tommyknockers. As they make their way deeper towards the deep well, King reorients us and reminds us what kind of book we are reading. Radar had gone ahead of us a little way, and now she was nosing at something on the, door, on the floor of the passage. A scrap of green silk. I picked it up, looked at it, tucked it into the holster with a tin cup of matches, and thought no more about it. The way was wide and high, more tunnel than passage. We came to a place where it split in three, each bore lit with that pulsating green light. Over each entrance was a keystone carved in the shape of the thing I'd last seen in two pieces on the floor of the residence wing, a squid-like creature with a nest of tentacles obscuring the horror of its face. What's up, lady? Hello there. Hello. So this is a big moment. This is your first appearance on the podcast. Did you know that? podcast you know i have a podcast so this is like this is like a you one of your youtube shows except there's no video and i have told all my what do you so you want to talk what do you want to say i have a dog named ruby and she's really cute she's all black you don't have to talk into it that you can talk that far away but that is very true kid and you know what i've been talking about ruby because i'm reviewing a book that's all about owning a dog and how important it is to own a dog. And do you know that my listeners have known about you? They know all about Maybe. They know all about Sunny. They know all about Han. You know about me. And they do know all about you. They knew about you when Mommy was pregnant with you, and they've heard you in the background when you have woken up uh, from a nap when you were a baby. Um, but this is your first time. Yeah, my dog is really cute, and I have another dog, but she died, and one died when I was two. Um, and how about how about you say, um, can you say, welcome to the Stephen King cast? Say, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. One man's musings. One man's musings. On the works of Stephen King. On the works of Stephen King. What is your favorite Stephen King story? Stephen King. <laughs> Very good. You shouldn't, but you do know this. Um, you know one of the Stephen King characters. What's the name of the creepy clown? Pennywise. Yes, you know, you know about Pennywise. Um, okay, kid. Say goodbye to everybody. Bye. Don't forget to say bye to Ruby. Okay, so I was uh, uh, reading a description that King wrote um, about the squ okay so the squid-like creature with a nest of tentacles obscuring the horror of its face the monarchs were a blessing this thing was a blasphemy 
Here's another fairy tale, I thought. One meant for adults instead of children. No big bad wolf, no giant, no Rumpelstiltskin. That's a version of Cthulhu over those arches. And is this what Gogamog is? High priest of the elder gods, dreaming his malevolent dreams in the ruins of Ryla? Is that what Elden wants to ask another favor of? And he just goes for it. Um, I started forward and down again. Leah hadn't moved. She was peering at the grotesque figure in the flapping purple robe, trying to make out its features in the dim light of the stars glowing in that insane abyss over our heads. I had almost reached her when the lights began to brighten, but not from the stars. The hum returned, only now it was deeper. Not, mm, but, ah, the sound of some alien being, colossal and unknowable, scenting up, scenting a meal it knows will be delicious. I looked up. Leah looked up. Radar looked up. What we saw swimming out of that dark, star-shot sky was terrible, but the real horror was this. It was also beautiful. If my time sense wasn't entirely shot, it was still daylight somewhere above us. Bella and Arabella had to be on the far side of the world in which Empus was part, but here were those two mo- but here those two moons were just the same, projected out of a black void that had no business existing, washing this hellhole in their pallid and eldritch light. The larger was closing in on the smaller, and it wasn't going to pass behind or in front. After the high gods only knew how many thousands of years, the two moons, these, and the real ones somewhere around the curve of the planet were on a collision course. They came together in a crash that was soundless, it really was a projection then, and accompanied by a brilliant flash of light, pieces flew in every direction, filling the dark sky like smashed chunks of glowing crockery. That toneless bray, ah, grew even louder, deafening the boom of the derrick began to rise, narrowing the triangle between it and the supporting mast. There was no sound of machinery, but I couldn't have heard it anyway. The fierce glare of the disintegrating, disintegrating moons blotted out the stars and, ba- and bathed the floor below in brilliance. The hatch over the dark well began to rise, pulled by the derrick's book hook. The grotesque creature in the purple robe was also looking up, and when Leia looked down, their eyes met. His were deep in sagging sockets of greenish flesh. Hers were wide and blue. In spite of all of the years and the changes, she recognized him. Her dismay and horror were unmistakable. I tried to hold her back, but she pulled free with a convulsive jerk that almost sent her over the edge, and I was in shock, numb by what I had seen. The collision of two moons in the sky that had no right to exist. The pieces were spreading and starting to dim. A crescent of darkness appeared at the edge of the dark well hatch and quickly widened into a black grin. The long, hoarse cry of satisfaction grew louder. The flight killer stumbled toward the well. His purple robe rose in several different directions. For a moment, that horrible, flabby head was obscured and then the robe fell to one side and lay on the stone floor. The man beneath it was only half a man, as Elsa might have only been half a woman. His legs have been replaced by a gnarl of black tentacles that hurried him along, teetering from side to side. 
his arms had been replaced by snake-like horrors that wave wavered around his face like seaweed in a strong current, and I realized that whatever the thing in the well might have been, it wasn't Cthulhu. Elden was this world's Cthulhu, as surely as Dora was the old woman who lived in a shoe and Leo was the goose girl. He had traded deformed feet and a hunched back for something far worse. Did he consider the trade fair? Had revenge and a slow destruction of the kingdoms been enough to balance the scales? It's just amazing. He was turning into Cthulhu, so like he continues. Now he was bending eagerly over the rising hatch the loose flesh of his face hanging down like dough. The crown fell off his head again. More of those black tentacles emerged from his neck, his back, and the cleft of his buttocks. He was turning into Cthulhu before my eyes, lord of the old gods, a nightmare fairy tale come to life. But the real monster was below. Soon it would emerge. Gog Magog. <laughs> Everything that happens after this is wild. Gog Magog emerges from the well, and King just cranks the horror. Eldon is absorbed into the emerging monster, and Leah and Charlie and Radar stand defenseless in the face of it. Uh, but maybe not so defenseless. King wraps it all together. It was growing, growing, thorny wings flapping. Eldon's face had disappeared into an, its unknowable guts. Then I thought of another fairy tale. Once upon a time, there had been a mean little man named Christopher Polly who had come to steal Mr. Bowditch's gold. Once upon a time, there had been a mean little man named Peterkin who had been touring the snab with a dagger, torturing the snab with a dagger. Once upon a time, my mother was struck by a plumber's truck on the Sycamore Street Bridge and killed when it drove into one of the bridge's stanchions. Most of her stayed on the bridge, but her head and shoulders had gone into the little Rumple River. Always Rumpelstiltskin. From the very beginning, the original fairy tale, you might say. And how did the queen's daughter get rid of this troublesome elf? I know your name, I shouted. The voice was not my own, no more than many of the thoughts and insights in this story belonged to the 17-year-old boy who had first come to Empus. It was the voice of a prince, not of this world and not of mine. I had begun by calling Empus the other, but I was the other. Still, Charlie Reed, sure, but I was someone else as well, and the idea that I had been sent here, that my clock had been wound and set years ago when my mother walked across a bridge, munching a chicken wing, for this moment was impossible to doubt. Later, when the person I was in that underground world began to ebb away, I would doubt it. But then, no. I know your name, Gog Magog, and I command you to return to your lair. It screamed, the stone floor shook, and cracks ran across it. Far above us were, one, were once more giving up their dead, and a great crevice was zigzagging its way across the field of monarchs. Those huge wings flapped, raining down, stinking drops that burned like acid. But you know what? I liked that scream because I was a dark prince, and that was a scream of pain. Charlie's defeat of the thing feels right, and shortly after, the world of Empiths begins to heal. The gray condition retreats, the blue skies emerge once again, but the story is not over, and the ending doesn't come without any more tension. And the aftermath of the confrontation, Charlie, and the aftermath of the confrontation, Charlie is dangerously wounded by Petra, and spends the weeks on the verge of death, fighting alien infection and visited by ghosts, literally. And the ending, all of it, it's really beautiful. 
From the tender goodbyes in Emphis to the warm reunion with his father, it's all so beautiful. Spoiler alert for the Dark Tower. But if anyone is still bitter and brave... I'm sorry, if anyone is still bitter about the brave and painful conclusion to that book, this is a soothing balm. Charlie Reed and we as readers get our happy ending. And I had mentioned this earlier with the description of the beast, and I just couldn't help but feel that for those of you who were upset by that conclusion to The Dark Tower, and spoiler alert for The, the Dark Tower, um, it's thematically appropriate for, for the story of Roland, but for anyone that just wanted a more traditional happy ending to the investment that you put in over 20 plus years of time spent with these characters and hoping for the best, if you substitute the characters here for the characters in the Dark Tower, you might get the sense of catharsis because, catharsis because in some ways, Charlie feels like an amalgam between Jake and Roland. You know, he's like what Jake would have transformed into if he hadn't perished um, by the, the van crash, if he had lived. And then Roland himself... And Roland himself, um, he had to make his way to the Dark Tower just as uh, Charlie here has to make his way to the city palace. And you substitute the tower for the, the Dark Well. He has to get to this location, but not before having to defeat this beast, this giant, the way that um, he had that Roland was once prophesied he had to beat a beast, which I guess you could say could be Mordred. But then you could also substitute um, the Lord High with Randall Flagg if you wanted a more traditional arc to the conclusion of Randall Flagg. Um, you have uh, a boy and his dog, much like Oi and Jake. Um, and then at the end, like he's entering the palace with his friends, with his quartet. So it's not this solitary, lonely conclusion. And then he has to confront this evil king at the end. And you get this, this showdown between Charlie and Eldon, much in the way that you kind of hope that you would get Roland and the Crimson King. So I, I just feel that... It, I don't think King did this on purpose. These are tropes and archetypes that he's playing with. But I, I think that if you wanted a more traditional conclusion to the Dark Tower story... You could get that here. So, King has written about growing up many times. And he has centered um, these stories with children um, growing past the wonders and childhood of magic. Whether it be the body, it, Jack Sawyer, Jake Chambers. He has explored this many times over. More rarely has he explored the age range that he does here with Charlie, it's not often when King centers a character at the age right before college, which is the age where there's still so much growth to do. Hearts in Atlantis stands out for his realism, for its realism. In many ways, this book feels like an antithesis to Christine, which Artie was the age of um, of Charlie, um, and. The, the supernatural stood in as a, a metaphor for obsessive young love and how it can squander the promise of adulthood. And here, the supernatural reinforces the character's potential 
and how he grows into that potential through positivity, confidence, kindness, hard decisions, and reliance on those around him. Where Christine explored isolation, exclusion, toxic codependence, fairy tale explores the long-running belief in the power and the importance of contribution within a community. So I thought that that was interesting. So guys, let me talk a little bit about the ending. Okay, so let's parse out what, where the ending starts. So for me, and again, I've been defining the ending anywhere from the climax onward um, or at times later on down the road with the, uh, the um, falling action and, and the resolution. But if, if we're to begin, if we are to begin at the climax, um, which is when the conflict um, is resolved, that is when Charlie gets radar on the sundial. And there are hundreds of pages left. So that means that the ending includes Radar getting younger, Charlie getting imprisoned, Charlie killing um, the, the, or, uh, the gladiatorial combat, the emergence of the, um, the, the night soldiers, the gladiatorial combat, killing Red Molly, killing Hannah, uh, leading the revolution, going back into the palace, um, going through the, the, like that really cool sequence where they're rising up on the pedestal, um, and then confronting, uh, Elden, watching Elden get like absorbed into Gog Magog, like, uh, the characters at the end of Akira, um, defeating Gog Magog, getting injured by Petra with the, that infection, seeing the ghosts, healing, watching everything heal in this land, going back to the real world, reunion, reuniting with his father, um, and living his life. That's a lot, okay? And I would say that everything there, that is significant, okay? So let me ask the questions that I have been asking of the endings of the works of Stephen King. So let's look at the ending and, and these questions of the ending as if it begins with Radar get, gaining some, some gears back. So does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the books? Think about each of the characters in play. Charlie, yes, absolutely. He's gone on his journey. He has um, grown into the person he's going to be. He um, saves the day. He uh, reunites with his father. His father stayed true to his sobriety. Um, Leah takes her throne. The people in the land are healed. So I would say, yes, it provides an appropriate conclusion to the characters. That's consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book. So again, this has been a very... I don't want to say simple because that almost sounds like it's bad, but it's not. It's just, it's not complex. There's not a complexity here and there's no greater um, morality that King is playing with. He's not punishing the characters. The, Charlie himself is good-natured. He hasn't been bogged down by a lifetime and lifetimes of bad decisions. All right, this isn't 
a bleak ending here, all right? This is an appropriate conclusion to Charlie's story, which was that of hope. At, at the beginning of the story, we started with the car crash um, of his mother and the alcoholism of his father, but that it, it, King didn't dwell in it. Very early on, King provided hope by watching his father battle his demons and conquer his own Gog Magog by coming out of that dependency and reclaiming his life and the relationship with his son. And mind you, King does not write about fathers and sons very often. That's why this is special. Right? He's written about surrogate fathers and sons, but he himself did not have his father. So we rarely see fathers and sons um, depicted in, in King books. And this was so healthy and hopeful um, and just a, a quality, good relationship with a with a father who believes in his kid, supports his kid, and similarly, a kid that supports and loves and believes in his father through each of their own journeys that they have to take. So yes, it's successfully, um, it's an appropriate conclusion to the characters. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Yes. So the second, like, this is a... a a book where the each path that 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 goes further down the road shows just how vast this world really is, and it um, reveals the dangers that are loom ahead, and you race towards it. So we, from him getting into the palace and then turning everything back from there, it is the the the, the graveyard scene. It's the dungeon. It's the tournament. It is the return. Um, to Empus, or the return to the the, the palace, the descent, the rise, and then descent into the well, the the um, revelation of um, Elden's uh, horrific nature, the rise of Gog Magog. All of it is just wonderfully done. And then, of course, that little that little postscript there after the conclusion that King is just really good at by having Petra bite him and infect him with the sickness, and then him almost dying um, to be visited by the ghosts and just the, the the bittersweet nature of the conclusion where he can't stay. He can't be with Leah. They're not meant to be together. Um, and there's this love there, but it's not meant to be. And he goes back to his real world um, and he closes up shop on, on any hope of ever going back to, to Empus. It's, yes, it definitely successfully wraps up the plot. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yes. Again, and I spoke about this with the, the character piece. Yeah, like it's a hopeful book. It's a book about hope. It's a book about a, a beautiful um, future and being your best self to engage in that future, um, you know, with the stories that preceded you. What's the most famous scene in the novel? Does it appear in the conclusion of the story? Um, it's too early to tell. I don't know what it might be. Maybe Radar's reversal. Um, maybe the emergence of Gog Magog. Um, maybe it's just the wonder of the the world as the color starts to return. Um, Reader, what do you think? What do you think the uh, the most memorable scene is? Let me know. Write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. What is the most, uh, are there other factors that we need to consider? Um, I don't know. It's new. It's fresh. 
Um, I think that maybe some people will be upset that it wasn't a part of the Dark Tower series. Do I like the ending? Yes, absolutely. Is it a good ending? Yes, absolutely. And so this means that I happen to like 36 out of 42 endings. And then based on the questions that I just asked, 37 out of 42 endings that we've done so far are good. That's a good track record. Now, let's just look at it. If it's if the ending occurs further down the road and it's not where the um, the climax occurs, where but let's just say it happens in the falling action or the resolution. Where's the falling action? Is is this where um, the the Gogmagog emergence, where he confronts? Even if it's the, if we're saying that it's that. Okay, and we skip everything between radar um, getting younger and uh, the confrontation with Eldon, the flight killer. Um, if we skip all of that, okay, still the confrontation with Eldon, the um, the leaning on the fairy tale structure and motifs of the power of names. It's very appropriate, very very appropriate with defeating this particular monster. Um, and also, let's go back to that the, the the importance of names in the in a in a story called Fairy Tale. Charlie Reed Charlie Reed's name is Charlie Reed. All right, knowing who he is is important because he knows his place within a story. All right, and we ourselves know our place as constant readers within this relationship between us and Stephen King himself. Radar, Radar, right? Who tells us where we need to go? Right? He's telling us where we need to go with these stories and how to be our best selves because as I have said from the get-go, Stephen King is not a story writer of horror. He is someone that believes in communities, why he keeps going back to the importance of Katet. He is Radar. He's telling us where we need to go, who we need to be. That's what stories do. Right? That's why it's so important. Yes, this is a good ending. Yes, it's a great story. Ah! Okay. So let's talk about Stephen Kingisms. Writers. Charlie Reed is a writer. Um, dead parents. All right. Stephen King often writes of dead parents. Number three, car crash. I mean, there, there's been more to, there's just been so many instances of a, of a character dying by car. Alcoholism. Um, when, when Charlie's dad gets into alcoholism, it's not surprising. And what's even better um, is that there's a Stephen Kingism of the defeat of alcoholism, which I'm glad to hear. The blue chambray shirt shows up. The magic portal behind a door, um, which we have seen in From a Buick 8, 11-22-63. Magic doors, of course, themselves are a huge part of uh, Stephen King tomes. The child venturing into a parallel dimension related to the rescue of a parent. <laughs> Jack flips into the territories to save his mother. Charlie is introduced to the parallel world because of um, his father, um, the, uh, decrepit fantasy cities we have seen before, whether it be Lud or other, uh, cities in the Dark Tower, we have seen it, um, in, uh, Rose Red, no, Rose Matter, um, we have Magic Lands uh, as the source of all stories, um, the, the well and going into Empis is very similar to, um, Booyah Moon in uh, in uh, Lisi's story, reverse aging. All right, going on the sundial, we have seen reverse aging before in Insomnia, um, and in the TV miniseries from the early '90s, Golden Years. 
Um, trains in a fantasy world. Um, this is featured prominently in the Talisman in the Dark Tower, and here we have trolleys in the fairy tale land. Insect royalty. The use of the monarch butterflies to indicate the line of royalty in the city is reminiscent of the use of bees to represent Queen Lily, Queen of the Bees in the Talisman. Slanted houses and haunted cities. When Charlie arrives to the city, King writes that the buildings seemed solid enough, but they were twisted somehow, as if a gigantic force had pulled them out of shape and they hadn't been able to entirely snap back. This is reminiscent of the town that Roland walks through in the Dark Tower where the Crimson King had come from. The house is warped by the exposure to his greed and his villainy. The villain in red. Kellen, Lord of the Night Soldiers, draped in a red velvet smoking jacket, reminds us of the Crimson King. Similarly, Eldon is described as having a red robe. Um, then we have a troublemaking, mean-spirited, chaotic little person. Um, that is Peterkin, um, and it reminds us a lot of Atropos from Insomnia. We got some Easter eggs. All right, so we have Cujo the movie. All right, like the, the movie Cujo is referenced. Um, child roll into the Dark Tower came is referenced, um, as it appears in King Lear. 1919 is the year that Bowditch discovered the Well of the Worlds. Um, the <laughs> So 19. Emerald City, I have talked about that before. I think that King just kind of threw that in. Eh, that, yeah, that's, an, that's definitely an Easter egg. Like, he chose to make it look like that. Inside View, uh, where Richard Dees of the Night Flyer, um, where he worked, that gets mentioned. Long days and pleasant nights. My mouth dropped open with surprise when Charlie toasted Kellen with the gunslinger's greeting. Um, and King goes out of his way to remind us that these are different worlds because Charlie was only familiar with it because his father had read it in a book, presumably the same one that we had read. And last but not least, um, there are other worlds than these. Gets a mention. So, listen guys... This was an absolute treat. Um, fairy tale. Um, it really was a beautiful book. And it's one that as soon as I was done reading it, I said to myself, man, I cannot wait to go back and luxuriate in this world again. And I just got to say that I know that in some other reviews, I've kind of uh, talked trash about some of the, the illustrations in other books, uh, most notably in... Um, Eyes of the Dragon, but the illustrations in this one, man, I love a good illustrated Stephen King book. I think that this needs to happen more often. I think that every Stephen King book that comes out needs some some pictures in there. Um, these are great. The pictures in this were just so good. From the pictures of the um, the uh, the Night Soldiers and Kellen. Um, you know, we, we didn't really get much of uh, Elden, uh, which sucks. I would have loved to have seen more of that. Um, we definitely see some of just the, the gray people. Um, it, it's just such an imaginative, inventive world that I would love to have seen more pictures. And I want a whole series of Stephen King illustrated works. Oh, well, we, I guess we do see some Elden, but not when he is... Um, like full monstrous becoming like a Cthulhu version. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, guys, if you're reading this and you haven't read, <laughs> um, if 
you haven't read this book, thank you for listening, but you really should go out and read it. And if you have read it and you didn't like it, you know, hopefully I have changed your mind. Um, not even talk about how the rats all swarmed Kellen to kill him. That was an awesome way of defeating the bad guy. I mean, the imagery of the moon slamming into each other, it, all of it is just so good. And there's a beautiful picture at the end um, of Radar and Charlie and Leia. Oh my God, her name is Leia. Her name is Leia, ladies and gentlemen. Um, amazing. The book was really, really good. And it's one that's been, you know, I've finished it over um, just about a week ago. And I've just been kind of just sitting with it for a while. Um before I before um, recording this podcast and the monarchs butterflies but what what are cat you know that butterflies are marked by the, tra- the the transformational journey of of going from a caterpillar to a butterfly right and and that in of itself represents Charlie's journey you know as you know young man to man from the beginning to the end of this book I mean we meet him you know he's looking back when he's a boy and by the end he has actually surpassed this point of the storytelling where he is a you know like a full-grown man um anyway th- this book rules um go out and, and read it okay everyone um if you liked this episode and you like the Stephen King cast please leave a review on iTunes it really helps me out you know there is uh there is a, a lot of podcasts out there about our favorite author and the more reviews I get, the, the more it differentiates it uh, from this, this podcast from the rest. And if you have any questions at any point, like you follow me on Facebook, um, on Twitter, although I don't really use Twitter because it is a hellhole, um, but you can always write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. That's my, my bread and butter right there. That's, that's where I just, you're able to really share your thoughts and I'm always able to, to read them, you know, on, on the air. So thank you everybody for joining me again. This was a treat. It was a treat to read fairy tale. It was a treat to give one of my trademark long reviews on this. Um, such a wonderful book. It was a wonderful time. I love spending time with all of you. Um, and that's it. That is, that's all that I've got. So may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Cast.